Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and we welcome all who are with us this morning, uh, whether you're here in person in our gymnasium or in the greater St. Louis area, perhaps listening on KFUO 850 AM or anywhere in the world, really, on KFUO.org. Um, I'll explain my presence here this morning. About 6 o'clock this morning, I got a text from Pastor Smith uh, saying that he had been up all night ill and uh, was not going to be able to answer the bell this morning. So uh, during the early service, I uh, crammed as much as I could uh, in on 1 Corinthians 9, and uh, we will go uh, charging headlong into 1 Corinthians 9 then with... Uh, not near the amount of preparation I usually like to have. But anyway, we'll pray the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we await the coming of your Son, Jesus, to bring with him all those saints who have gone before, we thank you for your continued presence with us in both word and sacraments. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And we pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon that study, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word, and especially also its implications, its application for us as your children here. Send your Holy Spirit to bless us then to that end, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we'll go into 1 Corinthians 9, and um, in some ways it may seem like it's a break from what has just been happening in 1 Corinthians 8. Where remember, Paul has a, a great long section dealing with uh, care for those who may have weak consciences and has been uh, talking about, for example, the eating of meat offered to idols. But really, it kind of carries from what he was saying. And he's going to be addressing those who are questioning his own apostleship, questioning his own authority as an apostle, and those who are puffed up with pride. Uh, he's going to be questioning uh, the fact that he actually uh, does not accept any money uh, as an apostle, and apparently neither does Barnabas, as they are in Corinth. And we'll talk through those issues and what Paul is trying to drive at here uh, as he addresses the Corinthians. So this really kind of is a good carryover uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This first, these first 14 verses contains 16 rhetorical questions. <laughs> Paul's got a lot of questions, and he doesn't answer any of them. So we're, we're going we're to look at, starting off, if, if it sounds like we're just going from question to question to question, that's because we are. 16 of them right up front, okay? And so then uh, I want to read, uh, first of all, we'll go through verse 7, and then go back and talk about it and, uh, and see. So starting at verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? All right, let's go back and dive into this then and take it apart. Am I not free? There's the first rhetorical question. And of course, is Paul free? Of course he is. He is free from the curse of the law. He is free from sin. And he is all of this through Jesus, isn't he? As he would be the first uh, to tell us, the first to uh, emphasize. Now, am I not an apostle? Now, apparently, again, there were some, we know there were in Galatia, but apparently there were some in Corinth also, who were questioning his apostleship. Now, an apostle, the Greek word means, one who is sent out with authority, apostello, to send away, to send out, with authority. And whose authority was Paul sent out with? 
that of Jesus, right? And we know back in the beginning of the book of Acts when they were going to replace Judas, of course, the disciple who betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself. As they're looking for a replacement, it has to, one of the qualifications also was one who had seen, had been with them from the beginning, but had seen the risen Christ. Well, now Paul was not one of the apostles, not one of the 12 disciples, I should say, right, who walked around with Christ. Well, where did he see the risen Christ? On the road to Damascus, right? Remember Acts chapter 9. Who are you, Lord? You know, and, and Jesus makes his, his presence and identity very, very clear. So Paul is an apostle. In fact, you could say he is the last of the called apostles, isn't he? The last one called by Christ, sent out not on his own authority, as we're going to see later. It's not wasn't his idea. <laughs> In fact, we know, of course, Paul was a persecutor of Christians prior to this. So it wasn't his idea, it was Christ, it was the Lord who appeared to him on the road to Damascus, literally turned him around and made him then one sent out with his authority. So, and then have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, of course, as we said, he has seen Jesus. Notice the plural there, our Lord. And then he also is making a defense for his apostleship based on the Corinthians, based upon that church that is there. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And that word for workmanship is uh, something that comes, uh, a result from work having been rendered or work having been done. Okay? So Paul really here is, you might say, offering a defense for his own apostleship. And he is saying, number one, that I, I am free through Christ, I'm not bound, I am an apostle, I did see the Lord, and you also are sort of the proof in the pudding, you know, as a church here in Corinth, which he established, okay? So he's, he's drawing up, he's sort of, you might say, marshalling his defense that he is an apostle, a full-fledged apostle, okay? Now, verse 3 this is my defense to those who would examine me. And apparently Paul is, again, under some kind of scrutiny. Uh, the, the Greek here literally means to judge someone. to put some. It's almost like you're putting him under the microscope to judge him. So this is my defense. So again, we think there was opposition there. Uh, do we, notice the plural there. He's going to talk about Paul and himself, rather, and Barnabas. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now, of course, that's a rhetorical question, and the answer would be, yes, you have the right to eat and to drink. And in other words, in exchange for his apostleship and his ministry, does he not have the right to eat and to drink? So he's going to be talking again about the fact that he has a right to be paid for as a minister of the gospel, but he refuses to do it as does Barnabas. We'll see this coming up. Okay? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So what do you think about this when it comes to the modern-day rules for celibacy? Were they around in the New Testament times, the apostles? Doesn't appear that way, right? Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife, a believing spouse? Uh, some of the translations may have a sister in Christ or something like that. I'm not sure uh, the ESV has a believing wife. As do the, no, notice, as do the other apostles, including, notice, who's Cephas? Peter, yeah. And you can go uh, to Capernaum today and see the excavation on Peter's mother-in-law's house. Uh, kind of hard to have a mother-in-law if you haven't been married, as far as I know. And so, uh, again, we would say that there is nothing wrong if a person has the gift of celibacy and does not want to marry. There's nothing wrong with that. And devote themselves entirely to the work of the Lord. But we should not be insisting. We, don't, we just don't find that in Scripture should not be insisting that clergy 
not marry, and, and so on. Uh, and I know that the other Bible class talked about that some, some time ago. But notice there, we would say there seems to be clear evidence here that the other apostles, some of the other apostles at least, uh, were married and in fact even had uh, their wives along on their missionary work, on their pro uh, proclaiming of the gospel. And Peter mentioned my name. Uh, verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And of course, the answer should be no. You guys too should have a right from refraining from working. Okay? But for some reason, and we, it's going to be coming up, by the way, what was Paul's, if, if he's working, what likely was he working at? What was his occupation? Anybody recall? Tent maker, yeah. If you look at Acts, we won't take the time to do it now, but if you look at Acts uh, 18, verses 2 and 3, and we think Paul was, is he, the, the word literally means somebody who works with canvas, okay? But usually that's translated tent maker. It could also, and this, I don't, I think this is correct, but I've heard speculation that maybe making sails, you know, sails on boats out of canvas could have been another. But I think the general interpretation has always been just tent maker, making tents. And that was his skill, his trade. We don't know a lot about where he got it, how he acquired it, but that was his trade. Uh, now, what, what Barnabas was doing, whether he was doing, whether he was also Assisting with tent making, we don't know. We're not told, so again, we, we don't speculate. But apparently, they were working and were not taking money in exchange for their ministry there, in exchange for their proclamation of the gospel and their teaching there. Paul goes on to buttress his argument uh, with a couple of, I guess you'd say, secular uh, examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? The answer would be nobody, right? Nobody. Yeah, I'll go into the military, but don't pay me. No, nobody does that, okay? And who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Nobody. I'm just going to plant the vineyard and watch the grapes, right? No. I want to harvest, okay, and eat some of those. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Same thing. So Paul's making the argument here, hey, you know, a, a soldier gets paid, you plant a vineyard, you get some of the grapes, you have livestock, you get some of the milk. So also his argument is that a minister of the gospel, what, is entitled to uh, pay as a result. Now, i got to say, this is an uncomfortable subject for any pastor to be talking about, but uh, just so happens that Pastor Smith got sick today, and here I am. Uh, let's talk for a minute about uh, today we have, uh, of course, I think it's still uh, the case, certainly, that the vast majority of pastors are simply receive a salary, receive uh, a pay for their ministry, full-time ministry of preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and all the other things that, that go along with it. However, there is a growing number in our church body and in other church bodies of what are called worker priests. Maybe you have heard this term before. Um, and what this amounts to is the pastor will work a certain number of hours at the church, and it's agreed upon with the congregation, but then will work a certain number of hours each week out, you might say, in a, a secular occupation or vocation. Uh, you know, could be in, in business, could be in uh, you know, whatever carpentry or whatever other skill or trade uh, the pastor has. And in fact, there are some guys, in fact, about half of the guys coming to our seminaries these days are what are called second career students at our seminaries, meaning the definition is they've worked at least two years prior to coming to seminary in some other field. Okay? And again, many of them, uh, I don't sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, but Pastor Thompson is a perfect example of this, right? He was in uh, firefighting and EMT for um, at least 10 years, I think it was, before even going to seminary, so he fits that example perfectly. And where the worker priests are usually called are in a couple different situations. One might be 
a struggling congregation that is, the membership is really shrinking down, and they're having a great challenge paying a pastor. And so they will look for and call from the seminary many times a pastor who is a sometimes called bivocational pastor, meaning one of the vocations is pastor, the other vocation is something else again, so that uh, they are able to put uh, food on the table, basically. Uh, or it could be a new congregation that is just starting up, bare bones, and again, there's a fiscal challenge there, and let's call a worker priest, let's call a bivocational pastor. Since we are so young as a congregation and just don't have the funding available yet to be able to pay a full salary, okay? All right, let's just for a moment stop and think about, are there any advantages that a bivocational pastor or a worker priest might have? Any advantages? We'll speak about negatives coming up, but any advantages you think they may have? At all. Yes, Jim. Yes. Yes. Yes, excellent. They are out in the, the real world, I guess you would say, right? Not, not that... Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of real world comes into our offices every day. But they're out in the real world, so to speak. But they are rubbing shoulders with people day in and day out who might not necessarily at all number one, even come into our doors to worship on a, on a weekend, or certainly may not find themselves coming into a pastor's office on uh, a given time, right? So they're able to interface with people that we may never see or have the opportunity to see, okay? Any other advantages? Carl? Yes. Exactly. I think, you know, living that day in and day out, uh, experiencing some of the same struggles, tensions, uh, that someone, uh, you know, the, the people, maybe that, maybe that impacts their preaching in some ways, you know, the, uh, the application of the preaching, if they're out there every, uh, you know, Monday through Friday with others in the workforce, so that can, that can definitely be. Those are the two main ones I thought of. Does anybody think of any others? All right, let's go to the disadvantage. What are the disadvantages to a worker priest or a bivocational pastor? Any thoughts? Yeah, that's probably, if you think about it, that's probably the chief, one of the, the chief one, if not the, the most important one, isn't it? That there's simply so many hours in a day and so many hours in a week. And, you know, again... <laughs> There's that old expression, the Lord's work is never done, and that really is true, isn't it? I mean, we, we could work, if we could work 24 hours a day, we could, and we'd still, there still wouldn't be done. But there's less and less time to devote to things like the study of God's Word, or preparing a sermon, or visiting with people, and so on, because you're being paid to be somewhere else, and you have to be there. Okay? So there's just less time. Can you see a, a yes, what? Oh, okay, yeah. All right. So the comment was that some who might, might, may be critical of him might begin to think of him as a second-rate pastor because he's only a part-time guy, right? Okay, that could be. That could be. Good. Can you think of a possible danger that a bivocational pastor might uh, put himself in, I guess you'd say, within terms of his own health and wealth? Exactly. You know, any pastor who is dedicated and fervent for ministry and the gospel is going to say, let's just say that he's working 20 hours at some other position somewhere. Do you think he's going to stop with 20 hours for the church? He's going to be tempted to do what? Do another 30, 40, who knows what, right? And therein lies a real danger. Uh, for that man, for his family, if he has family, uh, and so on. So um, it's, it's a very challenging situation uh, for men to be in, and uh, yet there, as 
you've seen there are some advantages as well. So it's something we're going to, unfortunately, the district presidents are telling us we're going to see more and more of this coming. You know, here at St. Paul's, we have three full-time pastors. Uh, that is far from the norm, far from the norm. And now we have, throughout our church body, many congregations that are called triple-point parishes, meaning there are three different churches that are sharing one pastor, okay? Just to be able, again, to support a pastor. So again, we pray for these situations, for these congregations, for these men who are in, uh, in these situations. And uh, Paul here kind of touches on this, that he had every right, as, as did Barnabas, to be paid uh, for, his, for his ministry, but he chose not to. Dennis? Yeah, so again, for those on, uh, on air and online, the question was, how does that actually come about in the call process at the seminary? And yes, many times a man will come in with another vocation that he's been in for 10 or more years, whatever it might be, a special skill set or knowledge, and he will either voluntarily say, I would be open to a bivocational, or the seminary and the call process might say, We've got a great you know, situation here that matches you very, very well, except that it's this. And would you be open to that as a call? And the congregation, of course, comes with that, making that very much known to the seminary, that, that we have to have a worker priest, or we have to have a bivocational pastor. We can't, we can't do it any other way. So anyway, sometimes guys actually are anxious to do that, other times, okay, I'll think about it, and yeah, I probably could do that. Or, I'm um, not really, I don't think so. You know, whatever, it, it runs the gamut. I thought I saw another, was there another hand somewhere? I thought I saw, okay. All right. So anyway, uh, by the way, um, if you're curious as to what pastors uh, uh, are paid these days, uh, you can go right on. It's, it's a matter of public record. You can go on, uh, for example, our Missouri district. You can go on the website for the Missouri district, and you will see a, a chart there. With It goes up by the numbers of years of experience. It goes up by the number of advanced degrees one has. There's a certain base amount, and then there are multipliers after that. So that's where Lori goes to figure out uh, how, how, what we're supposed to be paying around here and uh, there are some congregations that that's called a district scale and there are many congregations that are at that scale amount there are some that are above and unfortunately there are some that are below as well and we try not to <laughs> that's one thing it, it can be sort of a cumulative effect if you keep going lower and lower below that scale because then what happens when your pastor either receives a call and leaves or retires well, you've got a, in some cases, you've got a pretty steep hill to climb to even get back to scale. And we, the same thing with our teachers. You know, we want to be on, at least on, that scale because the same thing can happen then. If you need new teachers uh, or, or and so on. And, and frankly, it, it's, it's not fair to the worker either, is it? That we should be, we should be uh, paying as we're going to see here. Okay? David? Yeah, so the comment again for those online is as, as challenging as it is for a bivocational pastor, it has to be incredibly challenging for a pastor trying to serve three different places. And uh, absolutely. And uh, you get out into some areas of the country, and these are not like just in the next town. They're, they can be driving for an hour or more to get to the next one and then the next one. And they have to set up, okay, I'm going to start at, we're going to have the 8 o'clock service here at this one. We're going to do a 10 o'clock service at this one. We're going to do a noon service at this one. Or even sometimes different days of the week even because the distances are so much. I remember my, one of my last years at Concordia Seminary when I was uh, traveling, 
I went to, I won't even, well, I guess I could say, I went to the North Dakota District uh, Pastors Conference. And I, I really didn't know many guys there at all. So I was going up and, you know, meeting a lot of guys and so on. And it seemed like every guy I was meeting, I would ask them, where are you serving? I would get three congregations back. St. John's in here and St. Paul's here and Grace over here. And just repeatedly, like it was an exception if I didn't hear three names at once. So again, we should really be keeping these congregations uh, in our prayers as well as those who are serving. As David said, it's an incredible challenge. Steve? Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you mean now? Do you mean the church or the the the? Right. Okay. So the uh, comment was again that um, the employment place is going to expect they're getting good work. The boss there is going to expect they're they're getting good work out of the guy as well. And again, um, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and so many hours in a week. Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. So the comment again was about health related issues that definitely crop up and maybe putting off things that should be taken care of. And uh, anyway, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of challenges. A lot of challenges. Okay, Carl? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, Lutherans wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> yeah, so the comment was you've got three congregations that could start, you know, would you say complaining to the pastor that, well, you know, you're spending more time over there than you are over here, and, you know, how come you're over there more than you're over here, and it's just, you know, yeah, it, it, can, really, it can really get to be uh, unwieldy. And, of course, in all those cases, uh, one congregation is happy to have the others close and come to them, right, and to solve the situation. But, uh, anyway, it, it is a, uh, sometime we'll, um, we can talk more about this, but it is across our LCMS, it is, and we're not, we're far from the only ones. There are an incredible number of churches, which I looked this up before, but that worship a hundred or less on a weekend. Let that sink in. We had 97 at our Saturday service yesterday. But the incredible number of congregations that worship 100 or less on a weekend. And that gets to be pretty challenging to support a pastor. Even, even just the health care and benefits package and so on, let alone the salary. So it, it gets to be a challenge. All right. Thank you for your comment. Oh, yeah. But one more. Yeah, good point. Uh, Barnabas, and the comment was about Barnabas's name here, and it appears after they had their little kerfuffle uh, in, uh, in Acts, it appears that they got back together. They patched things up. And uh, remember, uh, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along on the second missionary journey, and Paul said, no way, Jose. He's not, he's not coming along. He deserted us before. And so they actually went off in different directions. And uh, it appears that they did patch things up, which is a good, a good point, isn't it? Uh, it's a good example to pastors and to all of us that differences can occur, but let's not let them stop the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? All right, let's go. We better go on. Um, verse 8. Do I say these things? Here come some more questions. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God, that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share, excuse me, share this rightful claim on you, 
Do not we even more? All right, so let's go back. This is not the best. I don't know how many pastors like this comparison. Uh, Do I say these things on human authority? So what's the answer here? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. Is he just saying it on his own authority? No. This is on God's authority, of course. And does not the law say the same? Yes, it does. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we could cite examples, especially in the book of Leviticus, about what the priests were uh, supposed to be receiving, especially portions of the offerings that were brought forward after they were sacrificed even, uh, were for the priests. And it is written, uh, and this is a quote, Deuteronomy uh, 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now what in the world is Paul talking about here? So when an oxen is, is um, treading out the grain, so you would, you would have a threshing floor uh, there, the grain would be dumped on the threshing floor, there would be the wheel that would be going around in a circle on the threshing floor, grinding the grain, and that would be pulled by an ox as it goes over that grain. And Paul is saying, you shall not put a muzzle on the ox when it treads the grain. Why, does, why did God's word, why did God say that back in Deuteronomy? Is, is God concerned? What's, first of all, what's the uh, oxen not going to be able to do with a muzzle on? Can't eat any of the grain, right? And so God says, Deuteronomy 25, Don't muzzle an ox when it's treading the grain. Paul makes a whole new application of this to who? Whom, rather? Himself. Right, himself. You know? So just like the oxen, when it's it's threshing the grain, should have the hope of eating some of that grain, so also it's another argument that he should be uh, entitled to, or have the hope of, I guess you'd say, uh, receiving some wage or some payment for that. Uh, again, I don't know how many pastors like being compared to oxen, but uh, it, is, it is a comparison nonetheless. Uh, so Paul is saying, you know, does he speak? Does he speak for our sake? And yes, it was written for our sake. So what do we do when, as uh, good Lutherans when we have a verse like this that is in the Old Testament and is interpreted and followed in the Old Testament, but now Paul makes a... My, um, his day application to it. Do we as Lutherans say that that's authoritative and that's, that's correct? Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah. This is the inspired word of God. And so if Paul is making this application, we're nodding our heads yes. Right? And Jesus does the same thing. He will take Old Testament passages that had, had at one time had one interpretation something either was going to come or even something maybe was happening, and he'll make an application either to himself or to something that's happening in his time, and we say, yes, that, we don't say, well, how could that be? No, we, we say that is an authoritative interpretation of, in this case, Deuteronomy 25. And so Paul makes that, and he says, doesn't the plowman plow in the hope uh, of some of the, uh, sharing some of the crop? And if others, notice there at verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So in verse 12, it appears to us, are there others who in Corinth are ministering and are being paid? What do you think? It looks like it. Yes, it does. Notice there, if others share this rightful claim to you, in other words, if, if others are receiving this claim, this rightful claim to be paid for their proclamation of the gospel, do not we even more? And the answer would be yes. Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Now, let's think about, go way back here when Pastor Smith started, chapter 1. Remember, who might be some other guys who might be being paid in Corinth? There was one guy started with an A. Do you remember his name? Apollos, right? Remember those? Remember the, there was a division, you know. And Paul saying, you know, some say you belong to Apollos, some say to Paul, some say to uh, remember the other one, Cephas or Peter, yeah. And some say to Christ. 
And so there's that division. And it's possible that Apollos, for example, uh, was being paid for his ministry, was not working as a tent maker or anything else, was 100% uh, in this. The other thing that we want to bring up is that we think the philosophers, and Corinth was a place where they used to sit around and listen to people talk a lot, uh, you know, wisdom and, and philosophers, uh, it was thought that those people were paid and did not have to work. All they needed to do was sit around and think thoughts and say them uh, in, in rhetoric, and, uh, and uh, everybody would gather around and listen to all the pearls of wisdom that these sophists had to offer. And some are thinking that maybe Paul is being denigrated here, exactly what you said before, Bud, that maybe Paul is being denigrated here because he is choosing to work and not to get this pay for just sitting around, in his case, preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments. And so maybe some are trying to attack him for that. In fact, there's even speculation that some of the wealthy are doing that in Corinth. We're going to see, you're going to see coming up, the big division between the haves and the have-nots, even when it comes to the Lord's Supper in Corinth, when you get into 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So again, that's speculation. We don't, it doesn't say that here, but it's kind of reading between the lines a little bit. Okay? All right, let's go on. Um, never, we're at, um, let's see, verse 12, uh, the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. In other words, the right to be paid for preaching and so on. We have not made any use of this, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And that is the bottom line, isn't it? That Paul, in this case, and Barnabas, that they endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is Paul's primary motivator and the salvation of souls. And I think it's fair to say that for any pastor, if he does anything that puts an obstacle in the way of someone believing or staying in the faith, there's nothing that would wear on a pastor's heart more than that. To know that something you did, even if it was unintentional, or something you said, or didn't say, or didn't do, put an obstacle in someone's, in the way, you know, put an obstacle between the gospel and that person. I don't know if anything could weigh more on a pastor's heart than something like that. And Paul is saying here, I've, I've endured all kinds of everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel for someone, okay? And uh, we probably don't have time to do this, but uh, sometimes we want to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, where we have the qualifications for those who would serve as a pastor. And there are a couple other places in the New Testament as well. That's why those qualifications are there. It's a higher bar than it is for the average person. That, so that, again, there's nothing that gets in the way of the gospel because Satan will try to use anything and everything possible to put a wedge between the person and the gospel. And the pastor should not be the, the, <laughs> the, one, that's, the one that's the main problem, right? The main problem with a person. All right, verse uh, 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. This is what I was referring back to before. The Old Testament laws about those who serve in the temple, not the, the temple in Jerusalem, get there, as he says here, uh, uh, temple from the food, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Again, this was established by God in the Old Testament. It's not something that these guys just made up. It was established there. Uh, verse 14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But where did Jesus ever say that? Let's stop and think about this. 
So we won't look them up now, but in Luke 10, verse 7, where Jesus sends out the disciples on a missionary journey, he says that they are to be eating and drinking whatever they give you. And so it's the idea, again, you're going to be receiving at least your food from them. And it's right next to where he says, don't take a purse, don't take, you know, in other words, don't, you don't go out there with your, your life savings, you know. You're going to, the implication is you're going to be provided for. God's going to provide for you through those to whom you share the gospel. Or Matthew 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, the laborer deserves his food. Okay, so those are a couple spots where Paul may be referencing that the Lord even commanded or, or established this same way, the same thing. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights. In other words, the right to be paid, the right to get um, uh, income for, for this, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, tout myself so I can get something here. You know, that's not my goal. That's not my... Uh, my uh, uh, end result that I'm going for here. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So what is his, what is his ground? What's Paul's ground for boasting? Is it himself? Only in Christ. He boasts only in Christ. He goes on to say, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me what? No ground for boasting. Now, you think people in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod have a high or a low regard for the office of the pastoral ministry? What do you think? High or low? High. Ah, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's the case. I think we would agree to that. And so they have a high regard for the office of the pastoral ministry, so they say a lot of nice things uh, to their pastor and, um, and so on. And what the danger does the pastor get into if he's not careful? On a per what could happen to his head? <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, to put a new doorway in, and uh, that is, of course, a uh, a real danger that pastors can get into if they're not careful. That you know, we hear things like, "Oh, that was a nice sermon," or you know, blah blah blah, whatever it might be. And if you're not careful, you got you got to say, "Thanks be to God," or you know, "Praise the Lord." And uh, God keeps you humble in that regard sometimes as well, because there are times when you think, "Oh." That's a, one of the best sermons I've ever preached. Nobody says anything. And then the next time you're thinking, oh, I, I just really blew it today. And you get people coming up all over. Well, pastor, that was such a great sermon. Thank you. And um, so it, it helps us remember it's not about us. It's the Lord at work. But Paul here is saying, if I preach the gospel of Christ, that gives me no ground for boasting. And that's exactly right. Not, shouldn't be boasting about himself. It's about Christ. Ruth? Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, good comment. Uh, talking about historically, and I think that's, uh, I certainly saw that in, in uh, my life, that um, I think years and years ago, I don't know if we call it boasting, but there was a much more authoritative view of the pastor as sort of up on a pedestal. And, you know, the, even the lady, the women had to ask how many potatoes we should put in for the stew, you know, for a dinner, which the, how does the pastor know that anyway? And, uh, you know, every, nothing happened unless the pastor, you know, knew about it, approved it, and, uh, and so on. And I think, we're, I think we're at a much better place today in most situations where the office of the pastor is respected not so much for the person of the pastor but for what that office is instituted to do and namely in our midst it's preach the gospel and administer the sacraments and that's why it's a good thing isn't it that the pastor his life his skills and knowledge and so on they add nothing to any, either of the sacraments they don't make the word any more or less efficacious. And it's, in other words, it's not about us. And that's what Paul is saying here. That if I merely preach the gospel, you know, uh, that gives me no ground for boasting. Right? That's what he's been, that's what God has told him to do. 
That's what Christ has told him to do. So why boast? I'm just doing what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So going on, uh, second half of 16, for necessity is laid upon me. See, there, there's that idea that I, it wasn't that I chose this. God called me. It is a necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, right? Christ has sent you to do this. Woe to me if I don't do it, right? So verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul's saying if I volunteered to do this, which he didn't, it was, he was called and thrown uh, off his uh, you know off his kilter there for a while if I do it of my own will I have I have a reward already but if not of my own will and this is what he's saying I'm doing it not of my own will but of Christ I am still entrusted with a stewardship that's one of our favorite words uh, as Lutherans right stewardship the uh, oikonomos in Greek it is actually a house manager is the original derivative of that word, one who manages the household goods, and we think of it, of course, in our time as Christians, not of managing household goods, but of managing what? What God has given to us, right? What he's blessed us with in our lives, and we normally think of time, talent, and treasure, but here Paul is saying he is a Elsewhere, rather, in 4 verse 1, he has said, and you already looked at this, that they are stewards of what? Of the mysteries of God. And so again, of word and sacrament, of the means of grace. They are, you might say, managers of the means of grace there. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So again, he kind of wraps this section up by talking about, again, what is my reward? That I can preach the gospel without any charge, right? No, I'm, he's doing it totally free without any insinuation that they should be paying him. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel, okay? So... He's gone through this long section, and again, we think he is, he's gone to this extent because there are those in Corinth in trying to undermine his authority as an apostle. And he certainly had this in Galatia, as I said before, and it seems like in, in pl different places he, he is going, there are always going to be those who are going to try to undermine his authority because remember what he did before. And, and they won't, some of them will never get it out of their head that he was a persecutor of the church. And they're going to continue to uh, not accept him, not receive him. Okay? All right, let's go on to verse 19. We'll at least get into this section. Oh, but Yeah. That, that issue, he's not at court. Right. So why is he so worried about what's going on in court? Okay. So there must be. Yes. Okay, so the question was, he's not in Corinth right now, of course. He's writing from Ephesus to the people in Corinth. So why is he so worried about what's going on back there? And, of course, uh, the answer would be that if you undermine Paul at Corinth, you undermine what Paul proclaimed in Corinth, don't you? And it's, it's, for Paul, it's always about the gospel. It's not about himself. And so, again, you can see Satan at work here again. If you undermine the apostleship of Paul, you undermine what he then said as an apostle or taught as an apostle. And that's what he would be most concerned about. Okay? It's like the same thing here. If you undermine a particular pastor, you call into question what he taught, right? What he preached and so on. Same sort of thing. Satan's at work. Okay, uh, verse 19. We'll get into one other topic here, and then we're going to have to... For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. All right, first of all, Paul, as we said before, he says he is free of all. He starts off, I am free from all. In other words, I'm not a slave to any person. But notice, what does he say? I have made myself, voluntarily made myself a servant to just some, all. Luther has a, a wonderful statement. I think I said this in Reformation a couple years ago in a sermon. Um, it's from his bondage of the will. He says that a Christian is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And that's through the gospel, of course. We're subject, well, we would say, exception of governing authorities and so on. But uh, at the same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So here's the way this works. The gospel frees us from the law, from, from the, the curse of the law, from the, the sting of the law and sin. We're freed up. Freed up to do what? Serve God and our neighbor. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, all, right? And so we voluntarily make ourselves servants of all, knowing that that is God's will and that God works through us to assist and, and supply his own creation. So we do this willingly. Paul says, I, you know, I'm, I'm, on the one hand, I'm free, but I make myself a servant to all. Notice there, to the, this is a really um, interesting one. He starts off with the Jews. He says, to the Jews, I became, uh, to, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, how do you think Paul became as a Jew to the Jews, what would he what would he possibly be doing? We might do it today. Reference the Old Testament first of all. Best place to start witnessing to a Jewish person, right? Because of the authority they hold the Old Testament to be. Ruth followed some of their customs. Yep, yeah. He may. And how about food? May it may have. You know, we today, if we're having Jewish people over. Would we maybe have, uh, even though we aren't under this uh, rules, would we maybe serve kosher food? Yeah. Anything wrong with that? That's a matter, we would say that's a matter of adiaphora, right? The scriptures have not commanded it, nor have they rejected it. Okay? So we might do something like that. Now, what's the only, uh, what's the only guardrail we've got to watch, though? That by our freedom, we don't venture over into where? Anything that is sinful, right? So when he's talking about to the Gentiles, he became a Gentile. You know, again, that's, we're assuming here it is, it is still within the bounds of those things, those territories, those areas, that are neither spoken against in Scripture nor commanded in Scripture. Okay? And there's, there's another area there called adiaphoron, which is neither commanded nor rejected in Scripture. Now, I always say, we've got to be careful about that, too. That we don't, uh, you can't say, well, do something that's going to cause offense to someone in the Gospel, and say, well, you know, God doesn't say anything about this, so I can do it. No, you know, use your head. What's going to be the, what's going to be the end result here? Is it going to be something that's going to turn somebody away from the Christian faith or not? I think you can do adiaphora well, and you can do adiaphora terribly. And the terrible way to do the adiaphora is to just think about what I want, not the implication of what it's going to have for someone else and their walk with Christ. I've used this before. I guess we'll have to close on this. Uh, and this is not a perfect example whatsoever. But when I was uh, doing my uh, D-Min coursework, I did it at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was in preaching, and, and uh, a great group of guys. I was the only Lutheran in the whole group. Were, all the rest were Baptists. And uh, so we would, each night, uh, have dinner together. And uh, several nights, we would go out to a eatery somewhere near the seminary down there. And 
What do you think I did not order when I sat down for my dinner? A beer. Yeah, yeah, or a wine. Why would I not? Did I have Christian liberty to be able to do that? Yeah. But I chose not to, right? I chose not to because I didn't want it to be an offense to my brothers in Christ. And so I think I've used that before. Again, it's not a perfect example. I'm not implying that they are not Christians, but it's the same kind of principle. I don't, I've got liberty to do something, but that doesn't mean I should do something, right? Just because I have the license to do something doesn't mean it's a command that I better do it, right? Now, uh, Luther, though, sometimes, if somebody told him that something was a command and it really wasn't, he would do it, just to prove the point. Uh, think of Paul. Paul had um, Timothy circumcised. Why did he have Timothy circumcised? Because they're going to be going in amongst Jews, right? Didn't want that to be a stumbling block. But when it was commanded that Titus be circumcised, what did Paul do? No way. Okay? So, again, we think about things that are adiaphora, neither commanded nor rejected. You can look at uh, Colossians 2.16. Let no one make a law for you regarding uh, food, Sabbath, new moons, and so on. All these things are a shadow. And uh, reality, or the fulfillment, is Christ. So we don't follow all those rules and regulations in the Old Testament, dietary, ceremonial, we're not. They've all been fulfilled in Christ, except now the moral law we still follow, of course. But again, we've got to be careful about how what we do or don't do, what does it say to other people, both uh, those who may be Jews, those who may be Gentiles and non-Christians, or even at times other Christians, right? We've got to be careful about those things. Because again, as Paul said earlier, we don't want to be a stumbling block between them and Christ. Okay? All right. I guess we will stop there at this point then. Uh, let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.